Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. We are doing something very different today because the world has gone a little different on us. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I basically want to do what we do for members, do a little bonus episode, which will include some bonus clips and a, you know, a collection of interesting thoughts, but it'll be uh, also conversational. Amanda's here. Hello. I think this might be your first time on the big show. It is my first time on the big show. She she comes kind. <laughs> she she comes by the bonus show every once in a while, but uh, for for the sake of this conversation, uh, we're releasing this to everyone, and this will be a, a regular show for all intents and purposes. And uh, the reason, which everyone will guess, but I'll, I'll just explain a little bit, is that I I realized that I had a very bad week this week and uh some listeners will remember from fall that i had a pretty strong reaction to seasonal affective disorder when it came around when when the time changed my brain chemicals didn't appreciate it went on the fritz a little bit and i was making a show which was like a bit of a struggle anyway but then as i was recording the flip the, the switch flipped and i started crying while recording even though there's like nothing particularly bad going on in my life and so i decided to talk about that on the show because it's good to air those sorts of things mm-hmm. we have found for yeah. for the the social benefit of mental health it's good to talk about the things that are troubling us and and so um luckily i bounced back from that pretty quickly you that, did which was which was really good. The, I was so glad. <laughs> I, I was surprised, but it worked out well. The The rest of the winter, I've been pretty solid. And then the middle of this week, I had a very, very similar feeling. And it, it like rose up in me. And it, yeah, it, it was like I just saw you in the morning. I could just tell by the, your face that that was what was happening. It was yeah, and a I, dramatic shift. I feel it first as nausea. Mm-hmm. Like not I'm not actually going to be sick, but I just have this like nauseous feeling in my guts mm-hmm. and a total demotivation, a you know, a mental block when it comes to trying to do work. Mm-hmm. I I did half the research for a regular show full of clips for this week and I got half of it done and then just couldn't go anymore i just couldn't push through and um the i i know everyone thinks i'm just talking about coronavirus that is not the case (laughs) when when i say i had a bad week i mean that very specifically i realized that i was having biden affective disorder yeah that was actually what kicked in first everyone should know the sign that's why i was having a, a a bad week i was having my biden affective disorder week and and that's that's what like got me down first and then within a couple of days, it's when seemingly all of Western media sort of caught on to coronavirus all at once. And that, you know, everything started getting shut down and all public events were being canceled and all TV shows with live audiences are being canceled. You know, it's like the awareness of it hit a, a you know, a frantic peak. Yeah, it's been snowballing every day. Exactly. In a rapid way. Mm-hmm. So we, we just wanted to talk that through, but also share the best of 
all the news and information that we've been coming across and wanted to share it in sort of a casual way. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about how you've been feeling? I mean, similarly, possibly, um, I guess mostly I just find myself trying to keep the anxiety at bay, which I think everyone's kind of dealing with. It's just you can't let it take over or you'll be you can't do anything if the anxiety takes over and that's not good either. So I'm trying to work through it with just um, simple steps, just even like talking to family and like kind of going through the steps of what we would do or how people should react. And, and that has kind of helped. And you and I have been talking about a lot and what we're going to do and, and those things. And I think that that has helped keep the anxiety kind of at a manageable level. Um, because if you have a plan of some kind or you kind of know how you're going to react to things getting worse, then it, at least you have that to fall back on. Um, I've also been having a BAD bad week. Um, I'm just stunned. You know, I was stunned already that Elizabeth Warren did not get the support that I really thought she was. I would, and then I was really sure <laughs> that Bernie was going to do better and um, that people weren't going to just say, okay, fine. I throw up my hands and give up all my values and the things that I want to fight for and I'll support Biden. <laughs> that as much as I, I guess I thought there was a chance of that. I did not think it would happen the way it did. I did not think it would be a wave the way it has. So yeah, that's been pretty, pretty upsetting. You know who I envy, obviously, besides people who live in countries with socialized medicine, um, fervent Biden supporters, because yeah. at least they only have one thing to be mm -hmm. panicked about, mm -hmm. but they have another thing to feel good about oh, at yeah, the same feel, time. They feel great. They think Joe Biden will save us all. Imagine feeling that way. That must feel really good. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. <laughs> So to get to our first clip, this is it's actually just audio because I, I heard some other show doing it and figured, why do it myself when I could play a clip? Because that's kind of what I'm all about. So mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, as many people have, I've subscribed to a bunch of coronavirus podcasts. One is the coronavirus daily briefing, which is actually put together by the same organization that does a um, like a 2020 primary campaign show that I've been listening mm. to for a good long while and it's the clips from that have been in the show. So that organization puts together this daily briefing on coronavirus, which is just a like a roundup of news. You know, they're not they're not trying to do their original news. They're they're doing news roundups. And so they read a Twitter thread that I also read mm -hmm. and thought that's a really good thing. Oh, look, he did it too. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so we're going to start, we're going to start with the most anxiety inducing parts and work our way down <laughs> from there. Try to ease it from there. Okay. And so, so this is the best layout of the math of exponential growth to give people an understanding of what is likely to come so that we can both see it coming and also understand really the gravity and importance of taking it seriously. Yeah. Over the weekend, a tweet storm from Liz Specht got a lot of attention online. 
Liz is the Associate Director of Science and Technology at the Good Food Institute. I'm going to read about half the tweets in this total tweet storm, but link to the original thread is in the show notes. Quote, I think most people aren't aware of the risk of systemic healthcare failure due to COVID-19 because they simply haven't run the numbers yet. Let's talk math. Let's conservatively assume that there are 2,000 current cases in the U.S. today, March 6th. This is about eight times the number of confirmed lab-diagnosed cases. We know there is substantial underdiagnosis due to lack of test kits. I'll address the implications later of under-overestimates. We can expect that we'll continue to see a doubling of cases every six days. This is a typical doubling time across several epidemiological studies. Here I mean actual cases. Confirmed cases may appear to rise faster in the short term due to new test kit rollouts. We're looking at about 1 million U.S. cases by the end of April, 2 million by around May 5th, 4 million by May 11th, and so on. Exponentials are hard to grasp, but this is how they go. As the healthcare system begins to saturate under this caseload, it will become increasingly hard to detect, track, and contain new transmission chains. In absence of extreme interventions, this is what happens. What does a caseload of this size mean for healthcare system? We'll examine just two factors, hospital beds and masks, among many, many other things that will be impacted. The U.S. has about 2.8 hospital beds per thousand people. With a population of 330 million, this is around 1 million beds. At any given time, 65% of those beds are already occupied. That leaves about 330,000 beds available nationwide. Perhaps a bit fewer this time of year with regular flu season, etc. Let's trust Italy's numbers and assume that about 10% of cases are serious enough to require hospitalization. Keep in mind that for many patients, hospitalization lasts for weeks. In other words, turnover will be very slow as beds fill with COVID-19 patients. By this estimate, by about May 8th, all open hospital beds in the U.S. will be filled. This says nothing, of course, about whether these beds are suitable for isolation of patients with a highly infectious virus. If we're wrong by a factor of two regarding the fraction of severe cases, that only changes the timeline of bed saturation by six days in either direction. If 20% of cases require hospitalization, we run out of beds by around May 2nd. If only 5% of cases require it, we can make it until May 14th. 2.5% gets us to May 20th. This, of course, assumes that there is no uptick in demand for beds from other non-COVID-19 causes, which seems like a dubious assumption. As the healthcare system becomes increasingly burdened, prescription shortages, people with chronic conditions that are normally well-managed may find themselves slipping into severe states of medical distress, requiring intensive care and hospitalization. But let's ignore that for now. All right, so that's beds. Now masks. Feds say we have a national stockpile of 12 million N95 masks and 30 million surgical masks, which are not ideal, but better than nothing. There are about 18 million healthcare workers in the U.S. Let's assume only 6 million healthcare workers are working on any given day. This is likely an underestimate as most people work most days of the week, but again, I'm playing conservative at every turn. As COVID-19 cases saturate virtually every state and county, which seems likely to happen any day now, it will soon be irresponsible for all healthcare workers to not wear a mask. These healthcare workers would burn through N95 stockpile in two days if each healthcare worker only got one mask per day. One per day would be neither sanitary nor pragmatic, though 
This is indeed what we saw in Wuhan, with healthcare workers collapsing on their shift from dehydration because they were trying to avoid changing their PPE suits as they cannot be reused. How quickly could we ramp up production of new masks? Not very fast at all. The vast majority are manufactured overseas, almost all in China. Even when manufactured here in the U.S., the raw materials are predominantly from overseas. Again, predominantly from China. Keep in mind that all countries globally will be going through the exact same crises and shortages simultaneously. We can't force trade in our favor. Now consider how these two factors, bed and mask shortages, compound each other's severity. Full hospitals, plus few masks, plus healthcare workers running around between beds without proper PPE equals a very bad mix. Healthcare workers are already getting infected even with access to full PPE. In the face of PPE limitations this severe, it's only a matter of time. Healthcare workers will start dropping from the workforce for weeks at a time, leading to a shortage of healthcare workers that then further compounds both issues above. We could go on and on about thousands of factors, number of ventilators, or even simple things like sailing drip bags. You see where this is going. Importantly, I cannot stress this enough. Even if I'm wrong, even very wrong, about core assumptions like percentage of severe cases or current case numbers, it only changes the timeline by days or weeks. This is how exponential growth in an immunological naive population works, end quote. That my friends, is what has a lot of people concerned. Not just, will I get the virus? Will my loved ones get it? Will it be severe? Not just death rates, not just infection rates, not just quarantines, not shortages, but the absolute potential breakdown and crippling of the entire healthcare system. Well, so that, yeah, that gave me the most anxiety I've had all week. So I I imagine there's some people listening who are feeling the same way. Um, What I want to say right now to kind of shift away from that anxiety is just that for a moment, let us all be incredibly, incredibly appreciative and grateful for people who work in the healthcare system. Um, you know, from the people who are doing the cleaning all the way up to, you know, the surgeons and doctors who are, you know, studying pandemics and things like this and trying to minimize the risk to everyone and care for people. Um, this is, you know, we think it's anxiety inducing. Imagine working in hospitals. And I'm sure there are some people listening right now who who do work in the healthcare industry. And I just want to say thank you. That is, <laughs> you are, um, you are risking a lot to go to work every day. And, and that's, that's something that we should all be incredibly, incredibly grateful for. And so to, to shift to the topic of the advice being given, Broadly, generally by politicians, sometimes by experts, but usually politicians sort of translating what their experts are saying. Like everyone's trying to walk a line Mm -hmm. between be careful and it's okay to continue to live your life. And what I continually hear is a very American style individualistic framing totally it's all about assessing your risk yeah judging your risk factors judging the place you're going to go mm-hmm. what may happen you know how likely infection is for you if you were to do this or that and because 
the numbers, although they may explode exponentially right now, they are small. And so getting the coronavirus is kind of like winning the lottery. And so the way statistics works is it's incredibly unlikely for you to win the lottery, but it's very likely for someone to win the lottery. (laughs) And, And so then people think they're saying something that makes sense when they say like, look, like, be careful, take normal precautions, but like, it's okay, you're going to be all right, travel if you need to travel, do what you need to do, because you will probably be okay. Mm -hmm. And that's not incorrect, but I don't believe that it is the most correct thing. Yeah, it's not a whole picture of what is actually happening. It is just one little piece. And what I would like to do for the sake of our conversation and an article that we're about to get to is to reframe it from the individualistic perspective into the the obligations to society mm-hmm. for a scenario that calls for obligations to society and there's no other way to deal with it. There is not individualistic solutions no. to pandemics. There just isn't. And so what everyone needs to do individually is really not think about themselves all that much and think about themselves and everyone beyond themselves. Yeah, in relation to the community. Yeah. So there was this article in Newsweek um, just this week, and it really caught my eye. It's an opinion piece, and there is no name attached to it. It is by a doctor in Western Europe. And, and when I read it, I think you'll understand why that person just felt like they didn't need to put their name on this. <laughs> um the title, or the, sorry, the headline is Young and Unafraid of the Coronavirus Pandemic, Good for You. Now Stop Killing People. Again, by a doctor in Western Europe. I'm a doctor in a major hospital in Western Europe. Watching you Americans and you Brits in these early days of the coronavirus pandemic is like watching a familiar horror movie where the protagonists, yet again, split into pairs or decide to take a tour of a dark basement. The real-life versions of this behavior are pretending this is just a flu, keeping schools open, following through with your holiday travel plans, and going into the office daily. This is what we did in Italy. We were so complacent that even when people with coronavirus symptoms started turning up, we wrote each off as a nasty case of the flu. We kept the economy going, pointed fingers at China, and urged tourists to keep traveling. And the majority of us told ourselves and each other, this isn't so bad, we're young, we're fit, we'll be fine, even if we catch it. Fast forward two months and we are drowning. Statistically speaking, judging by the curve in China, we are not even at the peak yet, but our fatality rate is over 6%, double the known global average. Put aside statistics. Here's how it looks in practice. Most of my childhood friends are now doctors working in North Italy. In Milan, in Bergamo, in Padua, they are having to choose between intubating a 40-year-old with two kids, a 40-year-old who is fit and healthy with no comorbidities, and a 60-year-old with high blood pressure because they don't have enough beds. In the hallway, meanwhile, there are another 15 people waiting who are already hardly breathing and need oxygen. The army is trying to bring some of them to other regions with helicopters, but it's not enough. The flow is just too much. Too many people are getting sick at the same time. We are still awaiting the peak of the epidemic in Europe, probably early April for Italy, mid-April for Germany and Switzerland, somewhere around that time for the UK. In the US, the infection has only just begun. But until we're past the peak, the only solution is to impose social restrictions. And if your government is hesitating, these restrictions are up to you. Stay put. Do not travel. 
canceled that family reunion, the promotion party, the big night out. This really sucks, but these are special times. Don't take risks. Do not go to places where you are more than 20 people in the same room. It's not safe, and it's not worth it. But why the urgency if most people survive? Here's why. Fatality is the wrong yardstick. Catching the virus can mess up your life in many, many more ways than just straight up killing you. We are all young. Okay. Even if we get the bug, we will survive. Fantastic. How about needing four months of physical therapy before you even feel human again? Or getting scar tissue in your lungs and having your activity level restricted for the rest of your life? Not to mention having every chance of catching another bug in hospital while you're being treated or waiting to get checked with an immune system distracted even by the false alarm of an ordinary flu. No travel for leisure or business is worth this risk. Now, odds are you might catch coronavirus and might not even get symptoms. Great. Good for you. Very bad for everyone else, from your own grandparents to the random older person who got on the subway train a stop or two after you got off. You're fine. You're barely even sneezing or coughing. But you're walking around and you kill a couple of old ladies without even knowing it. Is that fair? You tell me. My personal as well as professional view, we all have a duty to stay put except for very special reasons, like you go to work because you work in healthcare, or you have to save a life and bring someone to hospital, or go out to shop for food so you can survive. But when we get to this stage of a pandemic, it's really important not to spread the bug. The only thing that helps is social restriction. Ideally, the government should issue that instruction and provide a financial fallback, compensate business owners, ease the financial load on everyone as much as possible, and reduce the incentive of risking your life or the lives of others just to make ends meet. But if your government or your company is slow on the uptake, don't be that person. Take responsibility. For all but essential movement, restrict yourself. This is Epidemiology 101. It really sucks. It is extreme. But luckily, we don't have pandemics of this violence every year. So sit it out, stay put, don't travel. It is absolutely not worth it. It's the civic and moral duty of every person everywhere to take part in the global effort to reduce this threat to humanity, to postpone any movement or travel that are not vitally essential, and to spread the disease as little as possible. Have your fun in June, July, and August when this, hopefully, is over. Stay safe. Good luck. And just the description of the author. The author is a senior doctor at a major European hospital. She asked to remain anonymous because she has not been authorized to speak to the press. So there you have it. <laughs> and and I got to say, after reading that article, and I sent it to Jay and he read it, and we both just, not that we hadn't thought about these things, but the severity of it, the severity of being young and kind of feeling invincible. And like, I've been reading a lot about how millennials are seeing that flights are so cheap and they're like, screw it, let's go fly somewhere. If we die, whatever. <laughs> but it's not just about you. It's not just about us. We, we have to think collectively, which is so hard for Americans. It's, we're not used to it. No, we're, we're not wired that way. And we can't think that way. And Humans are incapable of contemplating exponential growth curves. Like right. we just can't. And, and think I think that way. most people don't understand the capacity of our healthcare system. You know, like they were saying, you don't have the numbers. Those numbers stunned me. I don't know how many other people didn't know those numbers. That sounds incredibly for a country of 350 million people. That sounds unbelievably low. The capacity is so low. It's so. It's partially low because, thankfully, not many people have to go to hospital at any right, one right. given time. 
And also, thankfully, you know, we have like 30 million people who can't afford to go to the hospital, so we don't have to worry about them. Right, right. That's that's what allows. I mean, literally one of the arguments against Medicare for all is that people would overwhelm our healthcare system right, if they, they had access <laughs> to healthcare. Yeah, yeah, they need they need assistance and they they would finally get it. <laughs> so the the other sort of image I want to put in people's heads is the like can we describe the graph of Mm. An unrestrained yeah. outbreak that totally overwhelms a system and a delayed, elongated, but lower outbreak mm. that hopefully doesn't completely overwhelm and it destroy the system. right up to the peak of the capacity, but... The, the idea being that if we take sort of extreme measures to get in front of it... It will likely last longer, but will be slow enough that like every <laughs> every case of coronavirus delayed is a hospital waiting room less overwhelmed right. today. Right. So that if you actually need care, you could probably get it. I mean, that's yeah, that's critical. So the, this graph was um, I believe it maybe originated in the New York Times Um uh, somebody in the health profession or maybe even a statistician, I'm not sure, was was trying to show people what social distancing really means. Like social distancing is the key here. And that does mean staying home, not going on trips. You don't absolutely have to, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And that can flatten the curve to the point where we might be able to get through this. It won't be fun. <laughs> it won't be great, but we might be able to get through this. The other option is like inconceivable. I don't think it's even though you see the this huge peak in red on a graph, you can't really comprehend what it would be like to overwhelm our system on that scale. That is incredibly hard to to imagine. The closest thing that you can imagine right now is what's happening in Italy and um it might be way worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean we we don't have universal health care. We don't have any Right assurances no insurances that you know people won't go bankrupt or lose their jobs or lose or, their jobs or have yeah. any sort of financial compensation for uh you know leaving a job for a period of time even if they don't lose it entirely right. so the yeah the combination of financial economic factors and health and suffering factors with death being part of that mm -hmm. is pretty hard to contemplate what that would actually look like. Obviously, we're not the experts on predicting the future on that, but these arguments being made, I, I find very hard to argue against. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what politicians and, and the people in the United States and other countries are, are saying is, is like, you know, be careful, but don't panic and go about your life normally. And that's not the right message like i'm not telling people to panic far from it the the message is if you don't have to do something don't do it yeah which seems like, pretty clear cut <laughs> yeah like if you have to do something no one's telling you to panic and not do it but yeah every every case of coronavirus avoided mm -hmm. means staying within that 
important range. Yeah. Yeah. Means less suffering for someone else. Right. And, and yeah. So the, I mean, that article starts with people, you know, like young people feeling invincible. Right. And it's not about you. Yeah. And the, and the other piece to think about this, and I, I, you know, I, I would guess that most of our listeners have already thought this part through, but a lot of people haven't. I think a lot of younger people think, well, it's just about older people and like they're going to stay home. Everybody over 60 is going to stay home. And so I don't need to worry about it. Well, it's not. So there are young people with compromised immune systems, whether they're on um, certain kinds of uh, medical therapies or they have pre-existing conditions that affect their immune system um, or or just even the fact that you know their bodies are compromised in some way that if they got sick even though they might be generally healthy um, they could have serious complications so I think we need to to reframe this it's it's not just save the old people from getting sick. <laughs> While that's really important, and we should totally do that, these are your grandparents and parents, everyone. Um, we need to think about those in our society who are who are compromised. And sometimes they can't just stay home and be completely isolated. I mean, just like anyone else who has a job, who needs to go somewhere, who needs to just go to the doctor on a, you know, for a regular checkup because they have a condition they need to go get monitored. Um, all of that is is impacted if people don't take the responsibility to take social distancing really seriously. Next up, we're going to talk about insurance companies and how capitalism was going to kill us all because how could we possibly have this conversation without having that conversation? Yeah. Has it ever been more clear that that's what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't we, think so. we've already talked on the show about how this is the clearest case possible for universal health care yeah. and paid sick leave and all the rest of it <laughs> and, and all the rest of it. And so just I, I can't even remember if this was in the coronavirus episode, but I just want to like really drive the point home about uh, one specific point on insurance companies. So Wendell Potter, he's been famous in progressive circles since about 2009 because he used to work for an insurance company and did the their evil bidding, saw the light, left, and has dedicated his life to taking them down. And Which is exactly the right penance for his evil. It, and he should do it until the day he dies. Yeah. Exactly. No, <laughs> I, I, I think that's pretty much what he's, what he's uh, signed up for. And so I, I saw a thread of his on Twitter talking about, like, hey, just, just a word to the wise, everyone. Remember that the insurance companies are... They're not just going to try to screw us over, but they're going to try to screw us over while making it look like they're heroes. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need a decoder ring to understand what they're really doing so that you don't get tricked into thinking, oh, well, you know, Trump and the insurance companies got together and they struck a deal so that coronavirus coverage right. will, will be, you know, protected. That is not what happened. No. This has been clarified by many people, so you may have heard it elsewhere, but we can't clarify enough. What apparently was agreed to is that coronavirus testing right. will be covered. The cheapest aspect of mm -hmm. dealing with the coronavirus is the testing. Certainly doesn't mean the tests are it's, going to become yeah. available or anything. Uh, and they're not cheap, like... By, by themselves, but the cheapest aspect of having yeah. coronavirus is the testing. E yeah. Exactly, because the weeks of uh, of care that a person may need if they are badly affected by it will be much more expensive. 
that is not what the insurance companies are promising to help with. So whatever your deductible is, if you signed up for one of those barely affordable high deductible plans, get ready to pay however many thousands of dollars in that deductible. Mm -hmm. And then sort of adjacent to that, uh, as I was looking up that Wendell Potter thread on Twitter, just to make sure I had those facts right, what did I see trending? (laughs) But Gilead... (laughs) You never all. want to see Gilead trending. Let me tell you that. <laughs> that is that is a rule to live by. So obviously we had to click on that and figure out what was happening. So, you know, who knows how big and widespread this news is outside of Twitter. But the, the news apparently is that there is a, uh, a pharma company named Gilead because mm-hmm. all irony is dead. Totally dead. And they're working on a coronavirus drug. Not a vaccine, is my understanding, but a drug that may be helpful to infected patients. So good for them. And the reason it's trending is not just because people are interested in that being a possible good thing, but because of the uh, capitalism that is obviously seeping into all of that. And part of the story is that... You wouldn't want to do something good for humanity. (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) So... Uh, as they're preparing this drug and looking to score patents to, you know, make as many billions of dollars as they can, uh, part of it is that they're in a fight with China for fear that China may not grant them that patent so that they could disperse the drug for free, God forbid, to the global south. God forbid, Jay. God forbid. God forbid people... Uh, got a chance to live in this shitty world we live <laughs> Sorry, I got dark for a second. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's not it's not just the health insurance companies. Pharma, like, to whatever degree anything good may come out of them, it's definitely going to be uh, tempered with a whole lot of injustice yeah. for those who can't afford whatever ultimately comes out and you know what what may happen is that governments will end up footing the bill mm-hmm. but maybe yeah may, you know may, maybe and it depends on the government and whoever's in charge but uh yeah that government funds pharma research <laughs> lets the companies make it and then ends up footing the bill yeah on on the other end as oh, well. Oh man, I mean this is what AOC it, rails about with the pharma companies like and and this is just another perfect example. Yeah, exactly. With the horrific uh name of the company being Oh, we're just living in a dystopian future, everyone. It's it's just our new normal. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I guess I just heard reference to the second Stephen King novel that it aligns pretty well with our times the first one i'm forgetting the name of but they're like oh look stephen king wrote donald trump like 40 years ago mm-hmm. and you know the 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 character is right, a right. like oh, a yeah. blustering like this. fascist politician mm-hmm. and and the new reference to stephen king and the dystopia that we're living in is from the stand and people's only clarification is that it's happening backwards because in the stand, the pandemic comes first and the authoritarian politician follows. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm-hmm. 
And now to pivot once more and look at what's happening on what is inexplicably the other side of the debate about coronavirus, which shouldn't exist, but does. Uh, obviously, conservatives led by Trump, but, you know, enthusiastically bolstered by Fox News and all the rest of the sycophants are continuing with their coronavirus propaganda. Uh, many people are talking about this. It's on lots of shows. You can hear clips from, uh, you know, on, on a variety of aspects of this, but on the media this week, I thought did a really good job. And if I don't play it now, I'm positive I won't get around to it at a later, later date. So let's hear that. On Thursday, the president said this. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. I was watching Scott. I was watching Scott this morning, and he was saying within two months. And this. I mean, think of it. The United States, because of what I did and what the administration did with China, we have 32 deaths at this point. 32 is a lot. But when you look at the kind of numbers that you're seeing coming out of other countries, it's pretty amazing when you think of it. And especially this. Over the next few days, they're going to have four million tests out. And uh, frankly, the testing has been going very smooth. If you go to the right agency, if you go to the right area, you get the test. If only South Korea, which discovered its first COVID-19 patient around the same time as the U.S., is testing 10,000 people a day, roughly the same number of people tested in the U.S. total since mid-January. And if we don't know who has the virus, experts say, we can't contain its spread, putting more Americans at risk. On Wednesday, political reporter Dan Diamond told Terry Gross that the White House rejected offers from the WHO to share the science behind its tests, saying that America would develop its own tests. The World Health Organization did have a working test. Someone somewhere made the decision that the U.S. was going to go its own way. And that started a chain reaction of not having a working test and then having these delays for weeks. There are widespread reports of tests delayed and denied because of shortages of kits and personnel. Also accounts by unnamed sources close to the president that he resisted offers by domestic labs to produce the tests because he didn't like the, quote, optics of national emergency that steeply rising numbers would imply. But the stock market surged when he finally did declare a national emergency Friday. According to McKay Coppins, staff writer at The Atlantic, when the president delivered his national address on Wednesday, a prepared speech from a monitor in a tone that seemed appropriately grave, it was a new turn in his propag I mean public information campaign. We declared a public health emergency and issued the highest level of travel warning on other countries as the virus spread its horrible infection. Yeah, I would say it was a 180-degree pivot, <laughs> at least in tone from the way he had been talking about coronavirus. In the past several weeks, every time he talked about it or tweeted about it, it was with a kind of calculated cavalierness. This is no big deal. It's no worse than the flu. And the criticism of his administration's handling of it was a hoax or an effort to destroy his presidency. Right. I think that speech on Wednesday night was the first time that we saw him talk about the global pandemic with the gravity that most public health officials wanted to see from him weeks ago. 
kind of Trumpian gravity. <laughs> he was using that tone that he assumes when he's being, quote, you know, presidential, right. somber and sleepy. It has a kind of rhythmic whine. It's like he's trying to <laughs> hypnotize you. Maybe it was a pivot, but it wasn't materially. You know, Politico has observed he's still reluctant to make a declaration of national emergency because that wouldn't fit into his narrative that this is going to go away by itself and it's not different from the seasonal flu. From the very beginning, he seemed to handle it in a way that we've seen him handle a lot of other political battles in his presidency, which is that he thought that if he could control the conservative media's treatment of the story, he would be able to keep the political damage to a minimum. Where he miscalculated there is that the public health crisis that we're seeing unfold right now is fundamentally different than a lot of the other episodes of his presidency in that eventually reality will assert itself, right? It's clearly spreading in the United States. The only real course of action for a president is to have a competent public health response. And so far, his actions have left a lot to be desired. You talk about what you call Trump's alternate reality, where he fills the air with information that is false or mostly false or inconsistent. The point is not to even create a narrative, but to exhaust anybody who wants clarity mm -hmm. and induce them to throw up their hands. That's right. Scholars who study this stuff actually have a name for it. They call it censorship through noise. Mm -hmm. And the goal really isn't to necessarily make people have conviction in a certain set of facts. The goal is to make it so that people throw up their hands and just side with their political tribe. I watched the president's speech on Wednesday night on Fox News so that I could kind of see what the reaction would be right after the speech. And what was amazing to me was how quickly and seamlessly the entire messaging apparatus pivoted. Up until literally like hours before the president's speech, you had Sean Hannity on his radio show musing about how the coronavirus threat was possibly a deep state conspiracy to harm the president. On immune systems, he said, quote, coronavirus fear mongering by the deep state will go down in history as one of the biggest frauds to manipulate economies suppress dissent and push mandated medicines may be true. And then you had the president give this speech where he acknowledged that it's a serious issue and it needs to be addressed. All of a sudden you had Sean Hannity talking about this serious pandemic and this president has taken decisive, aggressive action from the beginning. Now, from day one, this president took aggressive and even unprecedented steps to prevent the spread and mitigate the impact of what is now a global pandemic. Make no mistakes. In serious situations, truth matters. Facts matter. And unfortunately, there's been way too much politicizing of this, too much, well, untruths being told and actually even some actually weaponizing what is a global pandemic. That all needs to stop. I hope it will. I mean, frankly, I think Orwellian has become a, a cliched phrase in the Trump era. But honestly, this was as close to Orwellian as I had ever seen. <laughs> and what it showed me was that What's going to happen in the days and weeks to come is that you're going to have this concerted effort by the same 
media apparatus that has been carrying Trump's narrative for the last few weeks now make every effort possible to conceal that that ever happened. But they can't do that because we still don't have test kits. It's still spreading and you can blame it on Europeans or, as uh, some of the Republican Party have done, blame it on the coastal states of California and New York. And he still won't have contained it. The pivot that I'm looking for next in the conservative media is that you're going to start finding scapegoats, whether that's liberal politicians or governors on the coastal states, whether that's immigrants or China, so that the president doesn't incur political damage among his base. And also damage to the narrative that America first is the only way to solve any problem. And you saw it with his speech, right? The very first and most dramatic announcement he made was that he was implementing a month-long travel ban from Europe. As long as we can build walls and shut down borders, you know, then we can stay safe. I don't think that's the most important thing that's happening right now. But I do think that the entire project of the Trump presidency has been keeping a certain segment of the country inside this reality that he's created. And I think that that's under threat in a way that it never has been before. There was another interesting case prior to this speech where Tucker Carlson, without naming names, suggested that perhaps the leaders ought to be taking this more seriously. People you trust, people you probably voted for, have spent weeks minimizing what is clearly a very serious problem. It's just partisan politics, they say. Calm down. In the end, this is just like the flu, and people die from that every year. Coronavirus will pass, and when it does, we will feel foolish for worrying about it. That's their position. But they're wrong. Yeah, Tucker Carlson was really interesting. He was actually, for a while, kind of the lonely dissenting voice in the Fox News primetime lineup, uh, making the case that this should be treated as an emergency. It was really kind of an amazing moment where you saw this, you know, right-wing Fox News host pleading with the president to take this seriously. I don't know if that is, you know, the difference maker, but he clearly knows that the president watches. And there was at least one voice in this broader conservative media apparatus trying to get the president's attention. What about the coverage on the other cable news channels, CNN, uh, MSNBC? Do you have any observations about them? Or were they both kind of true to form? Well, I think, you know, for the most part, they were trying to uh, inform the public uh, about this growing public health crisis and warn about what was happening in other countries and how it could happen here. I do think, though, that, you know, if there's one critique you could make of the mainstream media, it's that for the last several years, we have been dialed up to 10, right? Mm -hmm. We've been covering every Uh, you know, episode of the Trump presidency, every scandal, every moment uh, with a sense of urgency. And I think that that makes sense given how, uh, you know, strange and extraordinary the last several years have been. But I do think that it comes at a cost, which is that when a global pandemic happens and we uh, really need to get viewers' attention or our audience's attention and communicate that this is really urgent, I do think there's a certain number of people uh, who, who are not inside the kind of Trump MAGA bubble, but still who have started to tune out media coverage because they say, well, they, they treat everything like it's a catastrophe and you know, usually things end up being fine. 
I think that is true. It's exhausting watching the news. I also think it's infuriating because not only is everything dialed up to 10 or 11, but it's put through a political filter, either the filter of politics or on specialized channels, the filter of the market. Part of what's happened is that the people who have remained plugged in to the news after years of of kind of exhausting political drama are the political junkies. And I do think that there is commercial incentive or an audience incentive happening here where everybody is playing to the people who watch cable news every day instead of necessarily trying to, uh, you know, inform the broader public. A Quinnipiac poll released this week, found that 68% of Democrats are concerned about the virus. Uh, About 35% of Republicans were. Does that Mm. sound like a public health crisis in the making? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most concerning results of the president's messaging, which is that they listen to the president, they listen to Fox News, they listen to Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin and and the talk radio world. And, and when they're all saying in unison, this is no big deal, this is no big deal. The media is creating a hysteria to hurt the president. Don't let them let them win. When that's the message that's being beaten into them every single day, they naturally don't take the public health ramifications seriously. They don't Think about, you know, canceling vacations or canceling travel or avoiding large gatherings or even washing their hands, right? And so this is one hopefully positive byproduct of the president now uh, starting to change his tone is that that this will mean that the president's uh, supporters will start to take it more seriously. But I think, you know, at this point, there's a good chance that the damage has already been done. Sorry. Well, <laughs> look at the coffee. That was a very on message cough. <laughs> McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party. So, yeah, uh, he really nailed it in every single angle there. Um, and one of the things I, I kind of perked up at was that whole concept of, well, everything's at a 10. Why do I really need to pay attention? The media overdoes it with everything. They, you know, they're constantly telling us to panic and freak out and things aren't that bad, you know? And the piece of that that ties into the pandemic really well is that we've been seeing pandemics across the globe for over a decade. And so whether it's swine flu, bird flu, Zika, Ebola, um, the news media has been cranking everything up to a 10 when it comes to those, uh, I don't know what the scientific term is. If I say epidemic, that's probably not exactly right. But these, you know, mass viral uh, situations. And the fact is that Americans have not been impacted the way other countries around the world have by those kinds of things. And so there is a sort of you know, boy crying wolf situation where the media is the boy who's crying wolf over and over and over again. You guys, there's a pandemic, there's a pandemic, there's a pandemic. And everybody's just like, after the 10th time, um, no, there's not. And you're totally lying. And then we all get eaten by a wolf. That's how that story ends. Right. And the only difference is that the boy in the story is lying. Right. <laughs> in In this story, they're like, there really might be a wolf. Oh, luckily there wasn't. 
Right, right. I know, but so, but but the thing is, the media but, makes it sound. You know, the American media makes it sound like it's right on our doorstep. It's gonna come, and then we're all gonna die. You know, it's just this like very amplified version. And yes, it it did come close. We had instances of Zika. I think in Florida, there was an Ebola case. I believe. Like, it's not like it never got here, but certainly not like now. This situation we are living in is what everyone was so worried about, and why there was so much fear around those other things. But the problem is, like, because America has, like, literally just lucked out on the fact that we haven't had this inside our country on this scale, uh, everybody's just like, this is something that happens to countries in Africa and South America and Europe and not us. Yeah, we just get poisoned by our own food. Right. (laughs) We we just have industrial farms that poison us on a regular basis, but but it's not viral. So totally not a big deal. Uh, and so just before we wrap up to to bring it back around to the need for thinking communally and socially about our actions, I just remembered a, another point we wanted to talk about, which was don't hoard. Yeah, don't, please don't hoard. Don't hoard. Um, the, the most extreme cases you may have heard of people having articles written about them because they didn't hoard for their own sake, but to make a profit, which yeah. is about the most American thing I can think of. Yeah, gouging the public during a time of crisis. Oh, yeah. So those are American capitalists. So that's on the extreme end. I don't think anyone uh, in this audience is in danger of thinking along those lines. But when you're at the store buying whatever supplies and food you need, also remember that there are a lot of other people in your community who need access to supplies and food and people who are particularly vulnerable. Like we really just need to think in terms of uh, taking what we need. So we feel secure, but, and go- no more. but, but going overboard uh, really uh, s- starts to, hurt the entire system. Yeah, and and honestly, and you were mentioning this earlier today, hoarding is is something that people with money can do, right? That's something that rich people can do to make themselves feel okay. Uh how about everybody who can barely, you know, pay their bills for the month and barely put food on the table? They're not going to go out and buy 20 months worth of toilet paper. They're going to buy it like as they need it. And if the shelf is bare because everyone else has been a jerk, then that's not helping anyone. <laughs> and so finally, we're going to wrap up on a positive note. Uh, this I, I've now heard this clip multiple places, so uh, you may have as well, but but we we wanted to end in on a human note about how people in the world who are facing the worst of this disease at the moment are responding when they are, um, you know, confronted with actual restrictions to their freedom. Uh, and life and death. L- life and death at their doorstep in Italy. And and when they are, you know, restricted from leaving their homes, they, uh, you know, uh, I guess a video started going viral because people are singing out yeah, their windows they, they've gone on to their balconies in italy i mean when i saw the story today i just got so choked up um they went out into their balconies and started and started singing like very well-known songs 
um, sometimes a national anthem, sometimes other things. And, uh, and then everyone else heard and started coming to their balconies and everyone was singing. And there are these videos of these empty streets at night with this beautiful chorus of voices singing in Italian out their windows. And I mean, my God, like, <laughs> I think, what did I say today? Not everybody's terrible. <laughs> Not all humans are terrible. <laughs> there are these little moments where you think, yeah, if we just help each other out and give each other a little bit of motivation to keep going every day when things are looking really dim, we might get through this. So I just think that was so beautiful. And after we saw this video, and I, I think that that song particularly was from a video shot in Siena, Italy, which is north of Rome. Um, so after we heard that, later in the day, I read this. At precisely noon on Saturday, millions of Italians from Piedmont to Sicily leaned out of their windows or stood on their balconies to applaud the healthcare workers in hospitals and other frontline medical staff who have been working round the clock to care for coronavirus patients. As church bells normally drowned out by traffic pealed in the surreal silence that defines Italy since Wednesday's lockdown, applause filled the streets, piazzas, and even country roads after messages went viral on social media calling Italians to put their hands together. There was a similar response to another online appeal Friday evening asking Italians to sing the national anthem or play it on a musical instrument at exactly 6 p.m. The socially distant flash mob swept social media. And, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're and we talk a lot about how social media has isolated us. And, and there's certainly tons and tons of, of downsides to it. But in a time like this, you start to see some of the good positives that we can still connect and then actually translate that into real world connection. And that at its best is what social media can do. But um, I just, oh, my heart. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah. And not, not to not to sing a love song to social media. No, it, no. It's <laughs> it's a it's about what happens to humanity when when people's humanity is tested, what shines through at a, at a time or you know in a way that it's just not going to shine through under normal circumstances mm -hmm. yeah we uh i've been hearing a lot lately about how we need to think of this in the way that we responded after 9-11 people were kinder and gentler with each other and we need to be kind and gentler with each other now um while holding each other accountable i mean i think that's part of it too i, I have started to see people say Hey, you're posting pictures of, you know, yourself out at drinks, getting drinks with friends. And there's a lockdown in New York. Why are you doing that? You know, stuff like that. And I think or, you know, posting pictures of yourself at the gym and <laughs> the, that kind of stuff. I think they're starting to be um, I hope it doesn't turn angry right now. It just seems to be like, hey, nudge, nudge. We're all we all need to be in this together. Can we can we just agree <laughs> that we need to do what's right to help all? of us collectively.
And then just to, I, I think to finish up with my favorite piece of advice, obviously everyone says, wash your hands. We don't need to repeat that. What is often coupled with that is a reminder that we, that no one washes their hands correctly. You got to <laughs> learn how to wash your hands correctly. You got to do it for a long enough period of time. What they recommend is singing happy birthday twice or something like that. The best advice I've heard is a reminder that you don't actually have to sing happy birthday. You could sing a different song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, to, can, you can get down with whatever your jam is. So, <laughs> so don't. Don't get depressed about the coronavirus because you're going to have to sing happy birthday to yourself all the time because that'll drive anyone crazy, especially when social distancing and quarantining ourselves. So remember to go out and find your favorite song or maybe or a couple pl- of them. playlist to, of songs. Yeah, just to change it up, make it different. Make sure that the, you know, the, the, the bridge is at least 20 seconds long mm-hmm. and go I've to town. I've been singing Lizzo. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some Beyonce songs recommended. There's, um, the killers, like there's a lot of good choruses that last about 20 seconds once or twice through. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to have a good mix. I have a tiger is always my go-to. Ah, good one. I, I, so my, my trick, I'll, I'll share a non-coronavirus tip for you. Uh, I, the tiger is my go-to song and has been for years <laughs> to get another song out of my head. Mm-hmm. If I have a song stuck in my head that I don't want to be there, I just hum Eye of the Tiger for 30 seconds and I can't even remember what the other song was. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good trick. So it, it's a really multifaceted, uh, useful song yeah, I found. Yeah. They had no idea what they were writing and how useful it would be. <laughs> exactly. And with that, we'll wrap up. Yeah, everyone stay safe and healthy. Be smart. Take care of each other. Check on your neighbors, too. You know, just give them a call. See if they have everything they need. There might be people living near you who need to, you know, someone to drop something off at their door and run away kind of thing. (laughs) Fair enough. So you can get in touch with us, as always. Leave voicemails at 202-999-3991. You can email me directly, j at bestofleft.com or amanda at bestofleft.com. Thanks for listening. Stay awesome.